welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Tori Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking about global citizenship, and I'm joined by Raul Caravadra. So welcome, Raul. Hi, Tori. How are you? I'm really good, and I'm so excited to be joined by you today because it's a long time coming since I think my first email to you saying, I would love to have you chat to me on Tiny Voice Talks. No, I'm really, really happy to be here. I know when we, we first tried it, it, things came up, but I'm really happy to be here today. Yeah. So for all of those that haven't come across you, Raul, who is Raul Caravadra? Lord, where do I start? I think <laughs> that is a really hard question for me to answer. Um, and I've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. I over two degrees, um, trying to understand that question. I think the the, the best I've got is... I'm 31. Uh, I'm the son of shopkeepers. Uh, I'm the child of diaspora. And right now, I'm really proud to say that I work at Lifter, a, a global learning organization that allows pupils to kind of build connections with people, places, and cultures across the world. Um, so, yeah, that's me right now in a tea. Um, other than that, I think we'd go too deep and, and your, your listeners would kind of switch off. I'm not sure. They're, they're, a per, they're a great bunch that have a lot of resilience, my listeners. They really do. But I know that many of them right now are going two degrees. What have you got two degrees in? So I have my initial undergrad is in philosophy and German mm-hmm. and kind of led to more questions than answers as philosophy tends to, which led me to doing an MA in global citizenship, identities and human rights. Um, at the wow. University of Nottingham, and I specialised in diaspora identity uh, construction in relation to long-distance nationalism and host nation lived experience. Um, an interesting story about my um, my journey into education. When I started my uni degree, I actually started doing accounting and finance mm-hmm. um, and kind of conformed to the idea of what I thought my mum and dad wanted me to be and mm-hmm. quickly realised I can't add, I can't balance a spreadsheet to save my life. <laughs> I, um, uh, I need to switch. Um, so I switched to philosophy. And then the only reason why I done my master's, um, my dad used to tease me growing up saying it's, it's quite hard to get a degree. And my dad came over to the country in the seventies and was one of the lucky ones to go to university. And he mm-hmm. graduated with a two, two. He's going to hate me for saying this right now. Um, and when I got my, uh, philosophy degree I got a 2-1 and my dad kept saying well actually in my day it was harder Um, so I was like right if it was harder I'm going to go do a master's Um, so I went and done a master's and shut him up quite nicely. I love that so what is global citizenship? So global citizenship is an idea of it's it's trying to look at citizenship in a world view. So a belonging to people, cultures, and identities across the planet. I think the, the nicest way to kind of understand it is through the lens of cosmopolitanism in, in the mm-hmm. ancient Greek sense as a citizen of the world. Um, and for Lifter, what that means is really having empathy and um, understanding of others as well. Um, empathy and compassion uh, at the heart of that. And I think that's where global citizenship and education kind of 
cross essentially. Um, so yeah, that's global citizenship in my eyes. So do you think um, the fact that the world has opened up digitally, does mm. that mean that we are more global citizens than we were? So I guess the initial aim of globalization was to to kind of connect us even more, to kind of dissolve those political arbitrary boundaries that have been created. And I think initially we kind of saw that um, in the in the late nineties, early two thousands. I think um, moving moving forwards around to where we are today, I think we've seen kind of a backlash towards towards that where kind of communities, countries are kind of reinforcing these borders a little. And I think we need to go back to kind of understanding or looking at the the possibilities that technology allows us to to have in, in bridging gaps and, and, and bridging um, between communities as well, I think. I think we've lost sight of that a little um, and it's become more transactional. Yeah. Sorry, I was thinking because I actually, when you said about putting borders up, I was suddenly put in mind of COVID and the fact that actually where where there was more sort of moving around the world per se, actually when COVID occurred, lots of borders became shut down and mm. actually we became much more about ourselves again. I don't know if that's just my, the way I'm seeing it. I don't know your thoughts. I, I think it did allow us to kind of reflect inwards a little. And I think, mm. especially at Lifter, we did see an inc- a, a large increase in, in teachers coming to Lifter to kind of allow students to escape their locality um, and look outwards a little more, which was really interesting. Um, I think what I meant by kind of the, the solidification of borders, mm. um, I kind of meant, I think there's been a movement more to away from cosmopolitanism, uh, yes. I mean, with things like Brexit um, and and people kind of reinforcing their national identities a little more. And we saw that with with Trump in America. Um, we've seen that across Europe with the kind of the rise of neo fascism as well um, mm. over the last five to ten years. But no, during lockdown, it was really nice to see teachers and um, and schools come to Lifter to kind of say, right, we've got this opportunity to kind of explore technology a little bit more than what we normally would. Um, and we want to use it to kind of broaden our pupils' understanding of the world, which was really nice to see. And that's so vital, isn't it, to broaden our pupils' understanding of the world? Because actually the curriculum that we give our pupils is actually in essence what they are living out. So it's really important that we are broadening those experiences. How how do people do that? I mean, lift us one way. I mean, what? How would you suggest? There, there are multiple ways. I think lifter. One of the things I talk about is just, and a lot of your listeners will will know this is about increasing cultural capital, and you can do that through school trips. You can do that through um, reading, showing images, um, you know, using platforms like lifter. Um, for students to increase their understanding of the world. But I think before we get to that point, we have to also increase the cultural capital of teachers and educators. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really hard to teach things that we're not familiar with. And a lot of the things that we touch upon in Lifter 
are very sensitive, very politically charged, and and we have to become familiar or comfortable operating within that space um, mm. for us to then kind of share some of the things we do. I think that's really quite powerful, the fact that actually we do need to increase the cultural capital of teachers. I was involved in an interesting debate, I'm going to say it was a debate, um, about a year ago actually with some other teachers about increasing the cultural capital of pupils. And some of their opinion was that it isn't the job of the school, it is the job of the parents to increase cultural capital. What are your views? It takes a village to raise a child. Mm. You know, it's everyone's responsibility from the teacher to the caretaker to the the lollipop individual, yeah. you know, like it's it's everyone's responsibility. Um, I don't think it's the, the role of parents. I think parents play a part. I think if we if we look at the term, if if we think about cultural capital in terms of um transactions what my parents allowed me to access easily was the cultural capital that they had access to which was yes. our, our ethnic identity i missed out on understanding things like the theater the opera to the point where i still think mild cheese is the best cheese to have because that's <laughs> what i grew up on right yeah. like I, I i wasn't exposed to those things i wasn't exposed to fine dining so if those Things can be exposed to me in other other kind of spaces from other individuals. I think that's really important that they do, um, you know, just an awareness. I'm not saying they need to take me to a Michelin star restaurant to understand what fine dining is, um, but to, to, to show me that there are other restaurants that look like this, um, that serve this type of food and why it's important, you know. Um, so yeah, definitely think that it's 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 everyone's responsibility. Not there shouldn't be a division between school and parents in terms of who's responsible. Mm. And actually, that's just reminded me of a conversation I had with a child a while ago, and we were talking about culture. And he was at, he actually said to me, it was a "Year six child," and he said, "What people don't understand is that I don't live this culture at home." Mm-hmm. he said my culture at home is completely different and he found it frustrating he found it challenging that people would talk you know in school about our culture and that wasn't his culture that wasn't his experience that wasn't what he was living at home how can we get better at learning about each other's cultures within school I mean, that's that's a huge question, I think. I know. I just thought yeah. I'd throw it out there, Raul. I mean, yeah, no <laughs> throw it out that. there, like, you know, go on, tell us. I think it's, it's, really, <laughs> it's really important to understand the, the communities and cultures on our doorstep yeah. um, and, and, and the, the communities that brought into school. Um, I think that that's a starting point. Parental engagement is key. Um, and I think it's important that when we, when we talk about this, it's – to make sure that it's not done in a tokenistic way. I, I, I think it has to come from a, a, a place which is structured, which has, which has got direction mm. and is, is a part of something bigger. I, I used to hate it growing up. We were the only Indians in, in our rural community. And because of that, 
um, my mum used to be brought into school to dress up in a sari and teach everyone about Diwali. And I used to literally oh cringe yeah. when that used to happen. But I mean, we've moved forward from that, hopefully. Um, or we, we, we're understanding that that the child, in my in, in this instance, me might not be comfortable with that kind of type mm. of interaction. I remember I was talking to a, a head teacher at a school once, and we were talking about tokenism, and I mentioned that very very example, and she was like, "Oh, that's interesting because we have um, for for global citizenship, and they were in a quite a diverse school and quite a diverse area." She was like, "We ask all of our students to dress up in their traditional clothes." And come into school, and my my toes just curled when I heard that, um, just because I was thinking about if I was asked to dress up in my traditional clothes and come into school, I I I I would just freak out. I wouldn't feel very I wouldn't feel comfortable in my own skin, and I think we have to think about it from the child's point of view as much as from um, the other children as well in terms of what they're gaining. What is that child actually? losing by coming into school doing that um yeah I, I couldn't do it <laughs> no and I think that's a really interesting point because I know that many of our listeners will have been at schools where that practice has occurred yeah. and actually people think they're doing the right thing people think oh we're celebrating cultures because we're making sure that everyone's coming in their traditional dress yeah. But actually, that's not necessarily a way of celebrating cultures and and celebrating the diversity of the community. Mm. I think I think having the community history represented in in school mm-hmm. is great. I think if that can be done through the curriculum, um, through open evenings and stuff like that, that'd be amazing. Um, I don't think it needs to be done tokenistically, like like dressing up in traditional clothes. I mean, I was talking to one school who was it was during the the, um, the period of Eid, and they would keep school open um, till late. And they they said if if members of the Muslim community would like to come in and break their fast together with others who aren't of the faith, um, that would be amazing. We'd like to facilitate that and and. Um, Parents came in and they broke fast with with parents who weren't Muslim, mm. and I think that's a really nice way for schools to kind of facilitate um, that type of interaction in a more meaningful way. I think because then you're meeting people of difference within your own locality that you might not necessarily get to engage with. Yeah, I really I love that idea. So moving on. In our pre-chat, you mentioned sustainable development. Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> You're asking me all the big, tough questions. I know. I, no, like, it's, I it's, like asking these sort of questions. You know, it's, it's like mastermind. It is, yeah. And I, I think <laughs> I think, I think most of my answers are always going to be wrong here because there are so many variations. Sustainable development, I think – where I tend to start with sustainable development is the, the 17 SDGs, the sustainable development goals that the, the UN have identified. And they're things mm-hmm. like um, zero hunger, zero waste, um, you know, all those big topics, gender equality. Um, in fact, racial equality isn't on there, which is one of the criticisms of, mm-hmm. of the SDGs. But um, they're the, the, the larger 
challenges that humanity will be facing in the future and and now and and sustainable development is moving towards a place where we're actually tackling these issues um and 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 meeting the challenge head on and i think it's a great framework to also bring into with global learning because a Mm. lot of the the sustainable development goals when analyzed through our our local lens are actually connected more globally. And I mean, just looking at recyclable waste, um, mm-hmm. we understand why we need to recycle because it's it's not good having everything dumped in landfills and it doesn't decompose and all of that. But when we do recycle, it's interesting to understand that actually our local authorities don't always have the the capabilities to recycle that individual item. Yeah. And they actually have to then send it to places like Turkey, which has its own carbon footprint for them to, them to recycle for us. So through sustainable, through the sustainable development goals, we get to see uh, a more interconnected relationship between our locality and, and others globally as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's move on to developing our children into global citizens. We've talked slightly about this, but how best can we do it within schools and what can we do? Come to Lifter. <laughs> we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll help you do that in a really meaningful way. I think it's about creating spaces where pupils can authentically meet individuals from these places um, from different backgrounds and cultures. Um, and what we do at Lifter is we create 360 degree immersive spaces, um, that pupils are, are kind of teleported into and they can explore this world that might be completely different to anything that they've experienced before and kind of hear it as well. And then at the center of it, they find an individual. And when they click on that individual, that individual is brought to life through a, uh, a short film documentary. And that individual then kind of explains a snippet of their life through this, through this story. And they kind of model the key skills and values that we want our pupils to embody, but also touch upon some of the sustainable development goals I mentioned earlier and, and, I think one of the important things is also when pupils have interactions with other people, they need to be from a place of positivity and, and inspire hope. Um, we were talking before we started recording about how a lot of the news that we're subjective to is quite negative. And if we look at the, the kind of the, the imagery or the the representation of individuals from abroad it's it's always things that are really bad you know we're not we're not getting positive i mean looking at afghanistan right now and and the images and stories we're getting uh uh just brings a tear to my eye to be honest but um i think when students meet um, pupils through Lifter, they get to see that actually they're, they're everyday champions. You know, they're not, they're not your Usain Bolts who are kind of a little bit out of reach. This person could be a person next door who's doing great things. And it flips the narrative on the head. Um, I was talking at um, the Festival of Education recently, and I was talking about the importance of representation. Um, 
I don't know if many of your readers would have, uh, or listeners would have come across Riz Ahmed. I don't know if you have as well. No. Um, so he's a British Pakistani uh, actor. Uh, he's a rapper and activist as well. He's been in a few films, um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Four Lions and, and um, a few others more recently. But basically, he started a campaign to challenge um, the representation of Muslims in the film industry. And um, it's really important that we look at this because we know that um, when people don't know a minority group, on-screen representation is far more impactful. Um, and the study was done across 200 films. And out of those 200, 181 of them had no Muslim characters. And out of all of the speakers, uh, speaking characters within those films, only 1.6% were Muslim. So there's a massive difference. Uh, it gets worse, unfortunately. Um, of those Muslim characters that were within the films, 53.7% of them were direct targets of violence and 59% were actually perpetrators of violence. Oh. And 19% actually ended up dying by the end of the film. So if, if, if we take that into consideration, what stories are our pupils being shown? About, about certain communities and what's our responsibility in, in demystifying that? Because ultimately what that, that story is doing is dehumanizing and demonizing portrayals of Muslims. And if you grow up in an area like I did in, in the Fenland, you know, it, it, it creates an uncomfortable environment growing up sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important that we, we have to flip the narrative and sharing positive human stories from across the world, like Lifter does, is really important. I think flipping the narrative is so, so important. But also, as you say, actually connecting with real people, enabling our young people in our schools to realize that these people that live in um, other countries are just like them and that really hit me um i don't know if you've read the book boy everywhere by am to sue but in that book it's about a normal family in syria and it starts off and his mum is going to the mall to buy him football boots and it hit me absolutely hit me that you know, when, when I'm watching the news and I'm hearing about Syria or Afghanistan or whatever, it can feel detached. It can feel like those people aren't living lives like you and I per se, but actually, yep. you know, they have ha- houses, they have all, it's a, they are real people like you and I. And I think the news can detach us from that. Yeah. And I what mean, I Ella- love about, sorry, what I love about Lifter is that you are, re-engaging you're enabling real people to meet real people and go oh my goodness you are the same as me yeah i mean london it was interesting you mentioned syria london school of economics in 2015 done a done a study on the media representation of the syrian refugee crisis and um 87 of the pictures depicted of refugees were in groups Mm. um and 79 percent of photos had no one was even looking at the camera. Um, only 13% of pictures depicted refugees as individuals. And as an organization that shares human stories, we know the best way to humanize someone is to show their face. 
Yes. You know, that, that's, that's really important. And it reminded me of a, um, a philosopher I studied during my first degree called Emmanuel Levinas. And he goes, the face compels us to a, a position of responsibility for the other. Um, and when he mentions the other, we don't mean in, in the current context, but the other in terms of someone else, another human yeah. being. Uh, it puts us in a place of responsibility for them. Once, once you've, once you've seen the face, you have to care. You can't go back to a place of ignorance once, once you know what that individual's going through, um, or how similar they are. And, and, and it, it, it allows you to form links with that individual. Like you mentioned, the football boots earlier. A lot of our stories, as much as they show difference, also touch upon similarities, um, to dehumanize as well. Um, so yeah. I think it, it's just so important. And another, you know, something that I always find surprising is the way people perceive Ethiopia in the same way as they did whenever the Bob Geldof was walking through, you know, the deserts of Ethiopia surrounded by young children. And actually, it looks nothing like that today. Re-engaging our young people with the reality of what today looks like around the world. And again, that's what Lifter does so well. Absolutely. I mean, I think if we look at what images our, our, our children, our pupils have of Africa, it is those images of Oxfam adverts mm. and Save the Children and, and all those. But I mean, if, if you were to go to Nairobi or uh, Kampala or, you know, Accra or somewhere like that, you will see skyscrapers touching the clouds. And I mean, I, I was blown away when I went to India for the first time. I saw a guy driving around in a Ferrari. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was dented to the point of repair, but it, someone has a Ferrari in India. Mm. I didn't think that was even possible. Um, you know, so it's, it is about introducing pupils to stories that break those preconceived conceptions that, that we have of these places. And it, it challenges teachers to think differently about these places as well. I mean, yeah. what we don't want to do is reinforce, I mean, we had schools who have used Lifter and they've actually decided to stop raising money for charities because they feel as if they're contributing to kind of a, a white savior syndrome mentality, you know, where um, it, it's, it's solidifying those power relations. And they want to, to do things in a, in a more meaningful way. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, I, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think it, listening to you, it's about smashing those stereotypes, those stereotypes that potentially we've grown up with and making sure mm -hmm. that we're not carrying that on to the next generation. But we're actually looking at the world as it is today, yeah. you know, and equipping our young people so that they are best placed to be that global citizen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the other thing is, is also it allows individuals uh, like me, um, BAME individuals to also see a multiplicity of identities. Um, there are other options. We don't have to just follow what we think is set out for us. Um, you know, if you want to be a dancer, you can be a dancer. If you want to be a chef, you can be a chef. I think this speaks for all children as well, no matter uh, mm. where they're from. But if, if you don't have exposure to it, then it's not a part of your reality, right? 
Um, hence why I studied accounting and finance for the first year at university, because that's all I knew. Um, to absolutely, I think, I think broadening students' horizons to look beyond their locality and, and see communities from different backgrounds um, and meet people even existing within their locality that are completely different to them is vitally important uh, f- for them to become active kind of members of society moving forwards. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, ensuring that we are widening their views so that yeah. they are no, that they're, they're not narrowed. You know, I didn't have, I wasn't told to be an accountant, but, you know, I came from a household in which it was very clear what, you know, what um, my father wanted me to do. I actually ended up teaching, which was not what my father wanted me to do. Um, but I think it's interesting. It's just enabling our young people to know that there are a wealth of possibilities out there for them. So for people, Raoul, that haven't come across Lifter yet, mm-hmm. how did they find it? Uh, so they can go to lifter.com, L-Y-F-T-A, mm-hmm. um, and it's the Finnish word to physically lift up. Um, and the reason why it's Finnish is because um, Lifter is part Finnish as an, as, as an organization as well. So uh, we have two co-CEOs. Um, Seda Ferret and Paulina, um, and they're both husband and wife. Paulina's from Finland and Sedar's from here. Um, so that's how the company got started. Um, but yeah, they can go to uh, lifter.com uh, and from September onwards, we'll be running um, free CPD sessions for schools, for teachers, um, where they can come to learn about how to embed global learning into their curriculum. Um, and then they'll also get uh, complimentary access to Lifter for a number of weeks uh, where they can kind of explore Lifter, but also um, launch lessons with it for their pupils and take them across the world to meet new people. How wonderful, truly wonderful. Now, Raoul, before you go, I ask everyone the same final question, which is if you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Do I have to give one? <laughs> you can go. You can go many if you wish. I accept. Okay. Um, so the first person would be Rabindranath Tagore. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if many of your uh, listeners would have heard of him, but he was a philosopher and social reformer in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in 1913 was the first non-European to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oh, wow. um, so I didn't know Indians won the Nobel Prize for, or, or any Nobel Prize, to be honest, until I came across some of his works and found that out. Um, the second person would be Armadhya Sen. He's an Indian economist and philosopher who also won the Nobel Prize, but in economics. Um, he massively shaped my understanding of identity as being negotiated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just blew my mind. And I think the third person would be Paul Gilroy, who's um, – the only individual, uh, no, Aramadhyay Sen's alive as well, sorry. Uh, but Professor Gilroy is at UCL and he specializes in race and racism. Uh, and he's most famously known for his two books, Ain't No Black in the Union Jack and Post-Colonial Melancholia. So they would be my top three. 
I don't know if they're around to teach me or if they want to, um, but yeah, I'd love to. Well, if they are, they're very welcome to join the Tiny Voice Talk School. (laughs) (laughs) Raoul, thank you so much for giving up your time and coming on Tiny Voice Talks and chatting to me about global citizenship. No, Thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing from your listeners as well if they come to the website. Yeah, and for our listeners, the link to the website, etc., is on the blurb attached to the podcast. So thanks again, Raoul. Thank you. Take care.